Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to AOC 2021. Our podcast is here to connect you to some of the great speakers that we've had throughout the day. Uh, before we begin, I want to thank Mercury Systems for sponsoring all the episodes today on day one of the, of the convention. Mercury is a leader in making trusted, secure, mission-critical technologies profoundly more accessible to aerospace and defense. You can learn more at mrcy.com. All right, I'd like to introduce my guest for this episode. He is retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant General Steve Wilson. He was the former Vice Chief of Staff for the U.S. Air Force. And in, in, the, in that capacity, he, was, uh, he managed the organizing, training, and equipping of over 685,000 active duty guard and reserve airmen helping direct strategy and policy acquisition, technology, personnel and risk management, just about everything uh, for the Air Force. So I appreciate having him on uh, the podcast today. Uh, General Wilson, you just wrapped up. Gr great to have you, first of yeah. all. Thank you. Ken, great to be here. Yeah. So, so you just wrapped up your, your spotlight session, uh, one of our keynote speakers for the day. Uh, what was your main message to the audience? Uh, well, if I had to summarize it, I'd say it's a call to action, right? There's no um, winning in any future conflict across any domain unless we have EMS superiority. It's, it underlies everything. And to do that, I think we need four things. I said in this time of unprecedented uh, changes and unprecedented, um, unparalleled times that we needed unprecedented leadership. Second thing I told the crowd is we need a sense of urgency. We, we can't just talk about this. We, we need to act on this. And by act, I mean, and this means all of us. That means academia and industry, our national labs and FFRDCs, and our military, as well as our civil society, to understand the competition and to unify our actions, break down those stovepipes, and act as this whole nation and then lastly, it's not just us, it's us and our key allies and partners that they have to be part of this. And we need to all, again, understand the competitive space, see what the other nations are doing, like China, and then together we can do anything. But if we're in, in our little silos, um, not unified, and without a sense of urgency, then... It won't be pretty. It won't be pretty, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so, obviously, with the theme of all domain operations, you know, one, one of the things that we've talked about in a, a few of the, on the earlier episodes was this, this notion of leadership, and you just touched on it, is, is it's one thing to say leaders, you need leadership, but it's another, a whole other kind of struggle to get leaders pointed all in the right direction and, and acting uh, with their, the authorities that they have invested in their positions and, and at, at the right time and place. 
Um, you are one of those leaders that actually, you know, helped get other leaders pointed in the right direction. What were some of the lessons that you learned from your time with the Air Force uh, that we can apply today as we're trying to get leaders in DOD and other stakeholders in industry and government uh, pointed in the right direction and acting with the authorities that they've been given? Yeah, one of the simple things we came up with, we called it the standard three. And the standard three is who's in charge? What's the plan? Give me a timeline and deliverables, and let's hold people accountable to that. Before, if I were to say an EMS, we'd say, who's in charge? And you get a lot of people, you know, looking around, and, and so we didn't have anybody in charge. So we've, we've fixed that in the Air Force. So T.C. Clark, Brigadier General T.C. Clark, is our guy running himself for the Air Force. We said, okay, what's the plan? And out of the, out of the EWECCT came a plan an action plan, not just for the next six months, for the next three years on things that we needed to do, right? And, and so we marched down that plan. One of those plans was we need to stand up a wing. And, and so we've now got around to doing that too. And so Colonel Dollar Young will be talking about that and I'll talk to you yep. shortly. We'll have Dollar but, Young but, here but, on the show. But, but, you know, he's, he's, he's down at the wing level, but we've organized not only at the wing level, but at the headquarters Air Force level, and we're, we're marching down that plan. And then we, we're going to hold people accountable to that plan. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the ECCT, and, and I wanted to touch on that because, it, interesting, you were with us about three, four years ago, four years ago. Yep. In, in 2017, mm-hmm. and, and you announced that the Air Force was launching this ECCT, ECCT at that time. Um, and so that ushered in a lot of changes. We're still dealing with that today, even though, you know, four, four years later. So you, you mentioned some of the good things. What... I want to touch on the, these lessons learned. Uh, obviously, the Air Force has done a lot of good things. Uh, what are some of the lesson, the other lessons that you've learned or the Air Force has learned through this process that uh, either they needed to uh, find quick solutions to or maybe some lessons that they haven't quite learned yet that we need to c- continue pushing forward on? Yeah, so, Ken, I would say that we, um, as we looked at making large organizational changes, you know, there's there's a bunch of things you can read on that. It's really hard. It, it takes determined leadership. It does. I think Dr. Cotter at Harvard's got a his eight-step process, which I think is really pretty accurate in terms of describing how you'd get large organizational changes and make that happen. But it does take a sense of urgency. It does take a common vision and a belief, and everybody not only knowing it's the right thing to do, but believing it here. They have to be able to see it happening. You know, we call that the quick wins, hit singles. So that when people start seeing the, the, the changes that are being made, it starts to drive a momentum that, oh, I can be part of this change. I can make a difference. And then once people see that, they start believing in it. And it just becomes, now you make that part of the culture of the company, of the, of the Air Force that just says, this is the way we roll. And so while that sounds easy, it's really hard at, at, at every level from the strategic operational down to the tactical level. You've got to be able to do that. But it starts with, you know, a, a vision that everybody believes this, this urgency for action and then the ability to people to see it and make it real. And the, and the uh, notion of having that, that common vision is really almost, uh, it can be very elusive, particularly when you're dealing with electromagnetic spectrum operations. And, you know, the, the theme being all domain operations, it really kind of means a lot of different things to different people. And, and I was uh, talking to, uh, in a meeting earlier, we were, we were talking how it's kind of like a kaleidoscope. You, you have something, you have an image, 
but depending on the lens you're looking at it and, and, or the number of lenses that you have to look through it and, and ha what you do with that, uh, it can either change or distort or give you completely different perspectives. Um, and it can almost confuse you in some ways about exactly how you're oriented. And so I wanted to kind of talk about, you know, with, with all domain operations, uh, you know, integrating effects, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a broad theme, but at the end of the day, I think all leaders get to the point where we understand that we don't win the next war without superiority in the EMS. Period. Period. Stop. Stop. Drop, drop mic. Walk away. Right. That's <laughs> right, right, it. That's right. it. Are we, do we have that vision yet? Is that vision shared through DOD? I think it's, if it's not shared, it's becoming shared. People understand, right? And there was, you know, we had a wake up call, I think, uh, as a nation. Certainly we saw in 2014 when, when uh, Russia went into uh, Ukraine and took Crimea, right? I tell people it was, it was not, yeah. So the, the General Breedlove used to talk about the little green men that the, you couldn't tell whether this was kind of this new hybrid warfare, but it was funny that all the big electrical power stations somehow got shut down so with the first big cyber attacks. Shortly thereafter, all the GPS stopped working because they got jammed. None of the cell phones could work because they too were jammed. And, and you saw this, what happens in this informationalized conflict of the future when that happens, right? And you had, you know, armies that didn't move and couldn't, couldn't communicate, couldn't shoot because they didn't know where they were, right? Um, so everybody kind of got the, uh-huh. Um, and so while China and Russia had been focused on how do we defeat the United States, we'd been focused on violent extremists in the Middle East and it was about that time we started really getting our focus back to strategic competition. Yeah, and, and that no, the notion of a great power competition, actually we're going to talk a, a lot about that tomorrow too. Um, but one of the uh, a, a stakeholders that I spoke to recently, you know, he, he made the point that uh, we, if you really look at it, we don't really have a technology problem. Uh, we still have the best technology in the world. We, we, we have an organizational and use problem. Well, um, I'm going to interrupt me. And an innovation adoption problem. Yes, you're trying to get that, trying to get that to the field, to the warfighter. From a training perspective, though, I mean, it's one thing to to equip our warfighters, um, but that training piece, especially when you're up against peer competitors who are training by actually operationalizing real, you know, every day, you know, in, in Ukraine, Crimea. How does that change how you? can train from an Air Force perspective or service perspective here in the U.S., how does that affect your training knowing that your peer competitor isn't just also tra having training exercises and so forth, but they're actually operationalizing every day what, they, what they're doing? Well, the, the training is really important. And how do we do, the, you know, that's the, one of the great um, challenges we have moving forward is this live virtual constructive realistic training in an EMS environment to be all domain and train in all domains across that, right? And then we can't, today we have lots of barriers, right? One of those barriers would be multi-level security, right? It becomes, well, we can't let you use that because then, you know, you, you'd, we've got to figure out a way past that. You know, are we keeping the information from, um, from ourselves in addition to, we're trying to keep it from our adversaries, but we're really keeping it from ourselves. But we, we have to be able to train realistically, full spectrum, across all of it, and we need to be able to do it in a live virtual constructive environment. I know people are working on that real hard, and it's, it's, it's a really worthy effort. 
right now I'd say we do it in piecemeal. We do by domain typically, if if at that, and we don't do it as nearly as realistically as we should. Right. Um, so so moving forward here, we have two more days of the convention, and uh, you know appreciate your appreciate your time being here throughout the convention. Um, and we had some great keynote speakers this morning. Um, what are some of the questions? So you were here four years ago and you ushered a basically a call to action and you backed that up with the ECCT and the Air Force and the changes that happened. If you're here four years from now, again, what questions do, that, do we need to continue to ask today and pursue today that four years from now, when we have you back on, hopefully sooner than that, but we have you back on and you, that we have solutions to? Like, what are, what are some of the key questions that we still need to be uh, pursuing solutions to on, on EMS operations? Well, I don't know if I got a, a questions. I asked a question at the end, you know, and it's really on the, on the call to action. If not us, who? If not now, when? What are the barriers that are holding us back? You know, how is it, you know, in, you can pick any, I can pick um, any of the big, you know, academia or industry or our military or national labs. Each and of themselves are doing fantastic work. They're in a stovepipe, all of them, right? If I take the military, individual services are, are stovepiped. With individual companies, right? It was funny having, I was having uh, at the reception last night met with two young people from two different companies and they talked about yeah I'm in this division of the company I'm in the ES division we don't talk to the EP people or the EA people in our company because they're doing their own thing so we we've got to really break down these silos and get the connections and the relationships stronger and more developed not only inside of companies or inside of services but more broadly this whole fabric of we're in this we all have to be in this. We need to be sharing the best information from academia and the best information from industry and with our military international labs, that that's how we're gonna be able to out-innovate and out-compete any adversary. But if we do it in a silo, it won't happen. It won't and happen. I, we had a, I had a David Tremper, uh, the director of EW and OSD uh, on the show a couple months ago, and we talked a lot about uh, EP. And, and the challenge of that is because we really, from an association standpoint, we have a really hard time identifying the EP community because they are not together in the same way that the, the traditional electronic attack community or EW community would be. So, But at the same time, the EP has become such a critical piece of technology capability that we have to put out into the field. Um, and by the time we realize that it's a little bit late, and so we have to rethink how we engage that community and how we do connect those dots for DOD. So here, I'll give you, you know, this is my, my ask the audience these couple of these questions. So while I gave a talk, part of it was me asking questions on. So today there's a bunch of what I call um, game-changing technologies out there that are on the forefront of things, uh, one of which is AI. And, you know, one of the attributes that we talk about in the EMS is the, the ability to be uh, 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 platform agnostic. It needs to be you know, software-defined, reprogrammable, AI and ML-enabled. Well, the recent report that came out of the National Commission of AI, the tagline, the, the bottom line said, we, the United States, are not prepared to defend or compete in the AI arena. That's the leading experts in the country. That's, that's what they said, right? It's one area. Let me give you another area, quantum. 
right? So there's lots of energy in China going on about quantum information science, right? So there's where it could be quantum computing, quantum imaging, quantum encryption. Um, what happens in 10 years when both of those merge, right? So today, if I've got a, and again, all the big companies, the, the Googles, the you name it, the, they're working on quantum computing, right? And Google says they will have, I think today they're at 68 qubits. They think they'll be 250 by 23, and they'll be 1,000 by mid-decade. Uh, mid well, 1,000 can break any Keats, Crows, or crypto known today. It will make today's supercomputers look like abacuses, right? When I have that enabled by AIML, what does that mean for us in the future? And so our job, as I call it, the leaders of the industry and, and militaries, is not just to be prepared for the here and now, but looking around the corner to the future and those things that will affect us, and we need to be in front of them and not react to them. And, and then we have to partner with the commercial sector like Google because we can't wait for DOD to catch up to well, where they're that, at. So it goes back to that whole thing, right? The sense of urgency with the breakdown of, of the stovepipes and the barriers of, of getting with the best in academia and industry and the military and the national labs. I contend there's no smarter people on the planet, but today they often work in a little stovepipe. I, I was um, at one of the big national labs. We actually embedded an Air Force guy so a, a warfighter with technologists. It was, and it was one of the smartest things that, that we'd done. And we had these technologists who were just crazy smart, but they weren't even, you know, they, they couldn't even envision the application. And the, by putting the warfighter with them, he's like, wow, you know, if you did this with this, can you imagine, right? And it opened both people's eyes to the, what are the potentials and possibilities here? And that was also this, it was one of the main themes that today I talked about. I talked about infrastructure, I talked about talent, and I talked about culture. But on this talent piece about how do we, how do we make sure we've got the right talent and what are we doing to educate, train, and experience that talent? And are, are we rethinking the talent paradigm where we're putting the, the operator and the warfighter with the technologist together and teaming them? And, 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 and not that be a bad thing, but no, that's a good thing. And we want to encourage that. And we want to, how do we incentivize that? And when somebody steps out and, and works with industry for a couple of years and, and comes back to us or, or, or there's some type of, you know, working with Kessel Run or Kobayashi Maru or, or, or one of the software factories like that, that that's not looked upon as bad. That's looked upon as no, that's really impactful. And we reward and incentivize people who do that. Yeah, because because we ha we have to rethink how we basically do all m many of our interactions between government, industry, and in uh, academia, um, because the way we are currently doing it is not getting us there to where we need to be quick enough. So these are some opportunities I think that we have to leverage and invest in. Absolutely, and again, uh, what I've seen now being retired for almost a year is that we make it really hard to work with industry we have to make it easier, right? And Congress is part of this solution. Congress has to help in this solution. Um, here we find ourselves in December, another CR again, like we've had for the last 20 years. They're saying, you know, today's saying is, well, it'll probably be now to January because we don't think we'll be able to get it done before December 8th. You know, then there's others who say, well, maybe we'll need to do one through March, right? 
and that's just more friction, right? It just it just puts more sand in the grease of the gears that we need to do to to, to keep things moving. And, and the problem with that is a lot of th- this trend that Congress has with the budget, it, it's been normalized now. It's it they're so used to this schedule of kicking the can down the road through another CR through another CR that it's easy to do that as a solution to some of the, the the problems that they face and so it's hard to get back when 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 I I was a congressional staff you know in the early 2000s and there was a quote unquote normal budget process and and I always laugh about when I hear people like oh we have to get back to the normal budgeting process I'm like you don't even understand that but that's it's true. Like we, we have to get back to this idea of giving companies a degree of certainty and confidence that the investments that we're talking about are going to flow in through the budgets and 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 the future planning years. Couldn't agree more. We we um, you know if I could wave my fairy dust wand, we'd have you know multi-year programming and colorless money and and an ability to 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 set. Um, uh, not nearly as many unit, you know, specific budget uh, line numbers. So there's more budget flexibility. So they don't have to go back to Congress for for reprogramming. Hold us accountable to spend it wisely. But but right now the friction on the services and the friction with industry. Again, I talk about competing. Right. We just have to understand the competition and say today. Look, let's just take what's going on in the world today. COVID is a drag on lots of things, right? Um, it's it's a drag on, on people, it's a drag on the supply chain, right? And now we're gonna throw in budget drag on this and, and go, well, do we need to do this? Is this this is this is self-inflicted? Yes, right, so. And, and, and hopefully one of the things we see coming out of COVID, and I think you can see it here as, you know, this, this show is actually stronger than we had in 2019, uh, is that it forced a lot of companies and a lot of agencies to rethink how they did business. And maybe there's something that comes out of it long-term where it says, okay, we don't need to actually use the old model because uh, this new model that we've been forced to use is actually helping us. And so maybe they're, they're in, in the future, some of that ch- some of this change that we're experiencing can kind of catch on and change in other ways. Sure. Well, we talked a lot about today in, the, in both the questions and in my comments about this, go back to talent, right? So we're... We're living through uh, arguably this this um, great resignation, uh, whether people don't like vaccines and and, and aren't aren't going to work because they, the government uh, says you know here's what you should do. Um, people are saying, hey, I'm going to retire, uh, um, and I said, so what discriminates your company? The question I ask, what what makes you special? Well, again, I, I think people want to work where you can go to an organization that you feel empowered, that with your bold ideas, people will notice that you can make a difference. And the workplace culture is one that, I, that I, um, I'm, I'm very inclusive to people and new ideas, and we're gonna continue to adapt and evolve. And I go, if not, the answer is real easy, right? Every, every company that I talk to is searching, they have lots of open requisitions. They have lots of places they're looking for talent because people are leaving. Right, and so uh, industry, the military, all of us have got to be smart to that and understand, you know, here, here's what people are demanding today in this new environment. And if we don't provide that, if we don't provide that, that workplace environment, where, again, where they feel empowered, where they can feel like they can make a difference, they'll go search where they can. Right, and, 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 and they will find it. It just won't be in, in where we need it for global security or national security. Right. And so again, in the, in the national security arena space, of which we're all really—that's—that's that's been our focus. Is 
we have a, some amazing talent. Right? It really is incredible. There, there, there's people thinking uh, that I've been exposed to in this last year that are so futuristic. They're, they're working on technology that's not one, but two generations ahead. We got to find a way to make that real, right? To enable it. Um, again, that's how we outcompete and out-innovate our adversaries. It's with this talent and a focus on the leadership development and the talent management of our folks and making it deliberate. And not, it's not a pickup game. It's deliberate, it's funded, it's organized. It's, it's part of how we, you know, the number one job of a leader, grow your replacement. <laughs> Great. Well, that, that's all the time we have for today. I greatly appreciate you uh, joining me here on From the Crow's Nest uh, to talk about your, your uh, presentation today. I appreciate your time and, and enjoy the rest of the show. Yep, Ken, great talking to you. Great. Well, well, that will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank our episode sponsor today, Mercury, innovation that matters by and for the people who matter. Don't miss our upcoming episodes. We, I, I will be sitting with uh, Colonel William Young, call sign dollar, to talk about the uh, Air Force Spectrum Warfare Wing. And uh, we will be having a show daily special with Dr. Bill Conley uh, to recap all the activity of today. So you won't want to miss those episodes. Thanks for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.